On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride is my husband, Will the Thrill. Ah, yes, and I say greetings and salutations. Did you did you open up something or no? No, that was a clank of ice in a glass. Oh, oh, so we're going hard tonight, eh? Eh, we're, we're going. I wouldn't say it's hard. It's... Did I just turn Canadian? For a moment, you did. <laughs> hard. <laughs> Canadian. Uh, and... No, we're going um, with the standard drink of my college years that was revived this weekend when a good friend of mine came into town, Captain and Coke. Yes, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But sure. uh, I got another person that actually showed up for this episode. <laughs> my brother from the exact same mother, Mr. TJ2, the deuce. Greetings from the media capital of the world for at least a few more days. <laughs> Are you covering the Murdoch murders? No, I'm. No, that's in the lower part of the state. I have no connection to it. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like such a circus right now. It's a mess. That's what I can tell. Just covering a six-week trial. I think I would. I think I would rather take a pine cone covered in fish hooks set on fire and put it in my butt then cover a six-week trial. <laughs> no, thank well, you. Now, there's a difference between, like, federal and state court, right? Because I, I know when you go to Columbia, you have, like, all these different, like, you can't have your phone or camera, and you have to write everything down, and they, like, shake you down, basically. They make you take off your belt and shoes and the whole bit, yeah. Yes. So and this like, is state court. So it's a little more freewheeling and open. This is not, this is not a, I don't envy anybody who is involved with or connected to this case. It's a mess. Like I watched a video just to try to catch myself up on it. I'm like, I still, I need a flow chart or something. There are so many tentacles and angles and participants and victims and <clears throat> so many different crimes. There's some of which have just been flat out admitted to some that obviously are being tried right now. I think they finally got to closing arguments today with it finally. Good Lord. Well, you know, the the thing is there are so many victims. And so, I mean, like I know that we are a music podcast, so, uh, but we are also human. And so our hearts go out to the victims and boy, howdy, this is a mess. Don't trust your soul to know backwoods Southern lawyer. <laughs> Reba said it best. Black yeah. to Vicky Lawrence said it best first, and then Reba said it. But still, the, the yeah. point holds. It was well said. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Either way, um, I guess uh, we're lucky to have not. Uh, to, to, we don't have anything to report on this week, which is really good. We I can report that my husband did survive a half marathon. So congratulations, Will the Thrill on yes, uh, did. finishing that in the fine city of Atlanta. <laughs> yep, and uh, that's that's all the news. This fits the print, kids. That's pretty much it for catching up on everything. And we missed you last week, TJ. Did you? You didn't really. No, it was so much easier to edit without you. Yeah, <laughs> it's easier to edit. And let's just be 
my stock can only I'm only gonna actually add just so much when we're talking about some composer. <laughs> Someone who's great Broadway musicals. <laughs> Good job, Brian. Thank you for that. Um yeah, so I guess what we'll do is uh we've actually got this episode, we've got one more episode with Stephen Sondheim. It's already written. It's taken care of. There's bow on it already. We're good. We just have to sit down and record it. And then we will start our season four, which has only taken us three years. This is uh, the longest podcast season ever. <laughs> but we will be kicking it off with a bang. Yeah, this podcast season started for us in January of 2021. <laughs> it really has. With Eddie Van Halen in January of 2021. Yeah, so that's what, 20, we're, we're only uh, 26 months. Yeah, per season. Yeah, we're doing well. I guess we will jump into Stephen after we take our first short sponsor break. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well... I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. And we're back. And we're going to get started with Stephen Sondheim, part five. TJ, just to catch you up, uh, you didn't miss anything that would interest you. <laughs> well, I could have sat out this entire series and that would have been the case, but whatever. <laughs> it's totally fine. It's what I intend to do when Phil Collins passes. So, I mean, I'll be there to press record, but that's pretty much it. Unless our listeners pick you to do it, that is entirely possible. That is not going to happen. I have ultimate veto power. I have. I am the quarterback. <laughs> also, I do have to say, I'm still a little funky, so I apologize if there's like a sniffle here or there that our editor doesn't catch. Still am suffering kind of the lingering effects of bronchitis, so sorry, guys. But, uh... I guess on a different note, Stephen Sondheim actually had a heart attack a little more than three weeks after Sweeney Todd opened. So if you guys remember, uh, he had just done Sweeney Todd. It opened to great acclaim. People loved it. And then um, actually the reviews are coming out for the new version of Sweeney Todd with Ashley, uh, Annalie Ashford and Josh Groban. And it seems like the reviews are pretty positive and they're basically praying Annalie Ashford's for her portrayal as Mrs. Lovett. So uh, he's, this, this show is still going strong, but he did suffer a heart attack a little bit more than three weeks after it opened. And five days after his birthday, it was March 27th, 
1979, and he was just 49 years old. Now, I guess the one thing that I did fail to mention in the last episode was nine years prior, uh, he did technically come out as gay, although it wasn't with, you know, much fanfare. And of course, there was no social media at the time, so nobody was printing it. It didn't, didn't really make waves like it would now. I thought that was much later in his life for some reason. No, he would actually come out and marry his partner much later in life. He actually got married in 2017, and we will cover that in the uh, next episode. Okay. Yeah. He woke up in the middle of the night with horrible pain in his chest, and he said the first five minutes were absolute agony. He said, you don't know what pain is until you've had one. Uh, it didn't render him unconscious like some people would think a heart attack would do. But he started to sweat profusely, and he was able to make it to the phone to call the doctor. An ambulance was called, which took him to Lenox Hill Hospital. And I actually know Lenox Hill Hospital because they constantly, when I lived in New York, would do ad after ad after ad. <laughs> on no advertising. Yeah, on radio and TV. So it was, it was the most advertised hospital. <laughs> uh, what's interesting is a lot of people say that when you have a heart attack, um, you get this sense of impending doom, like there's no way out. Like, and this is not when you're having the heart attack, it's afterward. Sure. So you you suddenly are faced with mortality, like you know you're going to die. And Stephen said that he he was nervous and he was scared, but it didn't actually occur to him that this would kill him. He was taken to intensive care, given morphine and other drugs to ease the pain. And he said by the second day, he was feeling better, not terrific, but definitely a marked improvement over actively having a heart attack. So at least he was in good spirits about it. I mean, isn't anything up from that point, really? I mean, yeah, I guess so. But apparently, like, this mindset's a common thread through a lot of his friends. Like, uh, Hal Prince is a great example. Uh, he would actually pretend that he did not have a 104 fever and just kind of walk it off. I feel like that's like a tougher generation than we have now. <laughs> uh, Stephen would stay in the hospital for two weeks. Uh, he was actually talking to his old friend, Bart. And if you remember, he had headed up the revival of frogs in the Yale swimming pool that we talked about last week. He actually had a heart attack as well. And Bert told him, you want to prepare yourself because you are going to be very depressed. And Stephen replied, mm. okay, thanks for the warning. He would later say, I wasn't happy, but I certainly wasn't depressed. I got home, started to recover, and about five days later, I woke up one morning and understood what depression was. I thought there was no point in going on. I just wanted to die. It wasn't pain. It was the glimpse into a chasm. It was the invitation of mortality. But interestingly enough, the feeling was gone later that day, and he did not know what caused it, but he likened it to his character, George, in company. Once you've been married, you can never have not been married again. So he couldn't believe, therefore, that he could no longer not have had a heart attack. Hmm. So he had to live with the fact that he had done damage to his body, and he had to live with what he had done with, and he had a heart attack. So he could no longer say, I've never had a heart attack. Yeah, put you in that club forever. Yeah. Now, friends would notice a drastic change in Stephen after his heart attack, and it went from being someone who never even noticed what he ate to going on a low-salt, low-fat diet. And thanks to his friend, Lewis, who was able to cook 
amazing meals without the, you know, salt or seasoning or anything like that, which people would describe as phenomenal by anyone who ate his food. So in short, he was just a damn good cook. Sounds like it, yeah. He also started to work out. It, it either sounds like that or it sounds like they're all liars. Dirty, <laughs> dirty liars. He paid them all off, yeah. <laughs> the cook, you think, paid them off? <laughs> yes. Say you like my food, here's money. <laughs> well, Stephen also started to work out. And before he would like bicycle through traffic, but he actually began to do sports training. He bought himself a stationary bike. And what he would do is he would set the bike up in front of his television and just watch dozens of old movies while working out. He lost weight, limited his alcohol alcohol intake to only wine. The doctors did all the, the battery of tests that they do after you have a heart attack. And luckily, very little of his heart was actually damaged by the event. And there was just a little bit of scar tissue there. That so is he, lucky. Yeah, so he really, really got lucky. J. David Sachs, who was an associate producer for RCA Records, had worked on the cast album of several of Sondheim shows, recalled that the album was for Sweeney Todd had been recorded just before his heart attack. Sachs said that he didn't see him at the time because he was buried doing two records, but he was recuperating. And we cut some of the test records and Tom Shepard, who was the album's producer, took him over to him. Stephen listened to the record and was moved to tears. That record of Sweeney Todd actually won the Grammy for the best original show album and became a bestseller. Nice. Steven got on the phone to me and said some of the sweetest, nicest things. I was so touched, Sax said. He also provided some incidental music for, you know, like TV shows, other plays and things like that, uh, including music for the Mad Woman of Central Park. Now that is a semi-autobiographical one-woman musical with a book by his longtime friend, Arthur Lawrence and Phyllis Newman. And the show had a bunch of different composers and lyricists that contributed to it. It focuses on the difficulties faced by an older actress who tries to balance her career with her life as a wife and a mother. And people that been included in the production were Peter Allen, Leonard Bernstein, Jerry Bach, Mark Carmen. Let's see who else. Well, Barry Manilow was the big one. And oh, that guy, yeah. Yeah, and he he, he literally wrote the songs. <laughs> Funny enough, he didn't write the song that wrote the songs. The idea for the next show, which was Merrily, originated from a suggestion by Hal Prince's wife, Judy, that he do a show about teenagers. And he decided that a musical version of the 1934 George F. Kaufman Moss Hart play, Merrily We Roll Along, would be a good fit. So he called Sondheim and said, yes, absolutely. The original play tells the story of Richard Niles, who is revealed on the opening night of his latest play to be a pretentious playwright of successful but forgettable light comedies and over the course of the play gradually moves backwards until reaching his college graduation. Quoting with all the fervor of idealistic use, the words of Polonius, this above all to thine own self be true. The play concerned overall three friends and their artistic ambitions, the price of fame, and the changes in the American society from World War I to the Depression. For the hmm. musical adaptation, the story was revised to take place between 1955 and 1980s, and the characters were changed. Richard Niles, a playwright, is now Frank Shepard, a composer. 
Jonathan Crail, a painter, is now Charles Kingsray, a lyricist and playwright, Charles Kringas. I have no idea how you pronounce that. There's so many letters and so many vowels in that. <laughs> and then Julia Glenn, a novelist now, Mary Flynn, a journalist and eventually a critic. George Firth was brought on to write the musical's book, Making Merrily a Reunion for Sondheim. Firth and Prince, who had worked together on the landmark 1970s musical, Company. Merrily premiered at the Alvin Theater on Broadway, where Company had actually premiered. As a part of doing the show about teenagers, and in order to, as the theater historian Ken Mandelbaum put it, enhance the ironies of the story, Prince cast the entire show's with teenagers and young adults who play characters in both their youth and middle age, which is kind of a cool idea, especially if you can like pull that off with makeup and stuff. That is interesting, yeah. Prince and Sondheim had conceived the show as a vehicle for young performers, and Prince was also charmed by, as he said at the time, the beginnings of artistry, the roughness of their craft, and their inexperience. I was charmed as hell by that. The show's production was also informed by its notion that the set consisted of a group of musical bleachers, of movable bleachers, lined with lockers and screens on which projections were shown to set the mood in period. Prince's original idea for the staging was to have no scenery, but rather racks of clothing, and these kids would come in looking like kids, and they'd be, they would pretend to be their parents as they see them, but... That was disregarded due to Prince's perception of what a Broadway audience would like. Paying Broadway prices would accept a show, as he put it. Guess what? I lacked the courage. <laughs> Interesting. He's like, uh, I know what people are going to pay for, and this isn't it. <laughs> Which yeah. is, but it's funny because there are shows that have actually done this now. That's and funny. there are shows like Bring It On that just have like lockers and Mean Girls just has, you know, basic state, like, I could do an entire series on a separate podcast just about the spectacle of the 1980s. What you're saying is you even saw Bring It On. <laughs> oh, God. I, <laughs> uh, I have regrets in my life. That's one regret. What is said regret? So we were attending a, a wonderful award show called the Oscar Wilde Awards, which is sort of a precursor to the Academy Awards. And few people know about this event. It's actually very exclusive. And we got in because of the company I worked for at the time. And you're basically on the level with every celebrity who's there. And there's no barrier between a guest and the speakers and everyone just kind of mills about. So your odds of running into someone are extremely high. Little did we know that one of those people we'd run into is Lin-Manuel Miranda. Now, LD has a track record of meeting people she admires and simply going to pieces. See Angela Lansbury. And this one was a little bit different. It's only Broadway people that I do this. Mostly Broadway people. Broadway people. So she she walks up to Lynn, and again, the word vomit just comes out. It was pretty incomprehensible until she uttered, I even saw Bring It On. And the look on Lin-Manuel Miranda's face was incredible. Uh, he was very gracious. He, he had a picture with him. He was very cool about it. But the I even saw Bring It On will live in infamy to this day. It was one of those things where you remember in Wayne's World when he first is talking to, oh my gosh, why can't I think of her name? Which he, yeah, Cassandra. And he goes, wow, I guess everybody was kung fu fighting and you can see the cringe on his face. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that was me. That was me. That was me with Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, okay. So it's very much like 
you get to meet Tom Hanks and, and you say, <clears throat> man, I just, I've followed your career forever. I've loved all your work. I haven't saw that turd Joe versus the volcano. <laughs> no, actually, when I met Tom Hanks, we talked about high definition porn. As you do. Well, we were, we were debating on whether or not certain things need to be in 4K. And then we talked about the reproductive organs in birds. Again, as, as you do. I should say Bradley Whitford was sitting in between us and we were on a movie set. But like Tom Hanks could not have been nicer, but I didn't fall apart with him. Bradley Whitford, nicest guy in the world, did not fall apart on him. But I meet Lin-Manuel Miranda and I just say the cringiest thing you could possibly say that. Yeah, no, that's exactly, that's the best thing, which is like meeting Tom Hanks and being like, love Joe versus the volcano. <laughs> so anyway. That's classic. For budgetary reasons, the show Merrily did not get an out-of-town tryout production because what happens is a lot of times shows will go to places like Boston or Washington and, or, you know, like even I think Connecticut is one of them where they'll get an out-of-town try out and and see how an audience is reacting to it and then they'll make changes and then and then they'll make a bid to move to Broadway but it didn't get it instead the production put in over 50 tryout performances which were actually previews on Broadway before the Broadway opening the tryouts beginning on October 8th 1981 had poor reception with audiences walking out which is huh. crazy by October 21st, the New York Times reported that the original lead, a man named James Wessenbach, had been replaced by Jim Walton and the Broadway opening had been postponed. Field was replaced with a different choreographer named Larry Fuller, and the opening was delayed a second time from November 9th to November 16th. Looking back on that painful month, Sondheim recalled, that month of fervent hysterical activity was the most fun I've ever had on a single show. <laughs> thriving in chaos. <laughs> By opening night, the production team thought that they had fixed the show, but in retrospect, they had only bettered it, not fixed it. And the critical response was merciless. The Broadway production, of course, like I said, was directed by Hal Prince and choreographed by Fuller, finally opened on November 16th, 1981 at the Alvin Theater, and it received mostly negative reviews. While the score was widely praised, which is kind of what we're here talking about, Critics and audience alike felt that the book was problematic and the themes left a sour taste in their mouth. Hampered by several critical reviews published before its official opening, as well as more negative ones published afterward, it only ran for 16 performances and it was outweighed by 52 previews. And more previews than performances? More previews than performances. Wow. In his New York Times review, uh, Frank Rich wrote, as we should all have probably learned by now, to be a Stephen Sondheim fan is to have one's heart broken on regular intervals, which is harsh. It's a sad, I mean, I don't want to say sad, but it's an ex expected reality. Even his level of genius, it shows you that you can't get it every time. You're going to have ups, you're going to have downs, and especially if you're an artist. I mean, that's inevitable. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. And and the thing is, it's not just Stephen failing or not producing. There's a whole team. Hal Prince yeah. has been honored by the Kennedy Center, for God's sakes. Like, he's not surrounding himself with slouches. So, you know, it's it's clearly 
a collaboration thing. So another critic, Clive Barnes, wrote, whatever you may have heard about it, go see it for yourself. It was far too good of a musical to be judged by those twin kangaroo courts of word of mouth and critical consensus. So, you know, half and half. Half you have me, Mario. Uh, the truth was, the audience was having trouble following the story. Consequently, the actors all ended up wearing sweatshirts with their characters' names on it. Fun, I guess. Yeah. So it was like the Mickey Mouse Club. I guess so. <laughs> I I'm try I'm trying to think of a a show that even does that remotely, but like, and the thing is. We have seen a show, and for those who who don't know, I, I do highly suggest this show. It's it's one of the best shows that I've ever seen. There's a show called Come From Away, and I think that there are like 12 actors in that show, and all 12 actors play a cast of about 30 people, but you know who they are and you know who they're playing because they take on different voices, different postures, different, and then they do do quick changes and they're, they change their clothes on stage and stuff like that. But like, it doesn't seem like there are that many cast members, which I, I should point out also that Liz Calloway is part of that, which she's Broadway royalty. And I, I want to say Jason Alexander is the exact Jason Alexander, I think, in this show. So it wasn't non-recognizable people. <laughs> So, but yeah, they ended up wearing these sweatshirts with their names on it. According to Meryl Seacrest, Prince dressed everyone in identical sweatshirts and pants. And they had their name emblazoned across the shirts because the audience had a difficult time telling the actors apart. Sondheim later remembered, I kind of liked it. The paying audience did not. (laughs) (laughs) The failure of Marilyn meant that the glory days of the Sondheim-Prince collaborations were over. And the two would not work again until what would be, I think, considered his final show in 2003 called Bounce. Oh, wow. Now, in the years since the show has been extensively rewritten and has enjoyed a couple of notable off-Broadway revivals, one in 1994 and a London career in 2000 that won the Lawrence Olivier Award for Best New Musical. The show will actually have its first Broadway revival this year in the fall, and I haven't heard anything about this yet, so I don't know if there are any dates or casting yet, but it's directed by Maria Friedman, and it will be a transfer of the 2022 off-Broadway production stage that happened at the New York Theater Workshop. So maybe this time around, it will be good. Now, the celebratory moment of completing Merrily actually was marred by a great sadness. Bert Shevelub, who... Uh, had been a longtime friend of Stephen, born in Newark, New Jersey, graduated from Brown University and Yale with a master's degree, served as a volunteer ambulance driver in World War II, began working as a writer, director, and producer for radio and television, Broadway career starting in 1948 with writing material, co-producing and directing a revival of a review called Small Wonder. And among his successes were working with Stephen on a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, one called No, No, Nanette, for which he won the Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Book of a Musical, passed away in his apartment in London, where he had been living for about 15 years on April 8th, 1982. He was survived by his mother and sister, and in him, Stephen had lost a true friend. 
Hey, LD, sorry to cut in here, but we do need to take a short break for those fine folks who sponsor this program. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, (laughs) oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. All right. Back to Stephen Sondheim. No, 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 no. It was a play from a very long time ago, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay. Well, hey, I didn't think I'd be able to do this, but I think I can offer you a fun fact. Fun fact. Fun fact. I believe the Boston Red Sox sold the contract of Babe Ruth to the Yankees so that the owner could invest in No No Nanette. That would actually make sense. Right, yeah. I'm, lo- I'm looking it up right now. No No Nanette was a 1930 film. I guess it got a Broadway revival record. Like it was revived in 1971. When he was traded. Yeah. First was not successful in his first pre-Broadway tour in 1924. So yeah, it is a really old show. It's almost a hundred year old show. Holy cow. That is crazy. But you can double check me on that. I don't think I've had enough to drink to, to make that up. I think the owner of the Red Sox was putting financial backing into No No Nanette. He needed money. He sold Babe Ruth to the Yankees and the rest is history. 
Yeah, it's yeah. just finance to play, which rubbed Boston fans even more wrongly. Oh, they I was going to say, and yeah. it's, it's history. Crappy, awful, shitty history for the Boston. <laughs> and there actually, you have it, actually, I do have a correction on that. You are vaguely correct, but mildly wrong. Vaguely so, correct. So a popular myth holds that the show was financed by selling baseball's Boston Red Sox superstar Babe Ruth to New York Yankees resulting in the curse of the Bambino. However, it was my lady friends rather than no no Nanette that was directly financed by the Babe Ruth sale. But it was still it was still a Broadway show. Yes. Still a Broadway show. I'm gonna give that to my brother ninety eight percent. Sweet. <laughs> I'm, hey, just, I'm proud you, of you. Hey, I one time had a test in school that was all true false. It was ten questions and I missed all ten. <laughs> Statistically that's gonna be impossible. But the teacher assumed I misunderstood the instructions and gave me a hundred. So she misunderstood. No, I didn't study. And these are blind guesses. And how can you miss all ten? <laughs> but see, if I'd gotten one right, I would have gotten a ten. <laughs> I missed all of them. So she assumed I misread the instructions. <laughs> That's amazing. That is funny. I have a history of being kind of correct. I have a history of being kind of correct, but not really. I'm proud of you. I get, I mean, that's on brand for our family, though. Just happening into success, I guess. I mean, it's a crowning achievement for me, sure. I'm, proud of, <laughs> I'm, I'm very proud of you. Okay. So, you know, getting back to Merrily, we roll along because I would like to merrily roll along with this show. <laughs> After the failure and scathing critical reception of Merrily, we roll along. In 1981, Sondheim announced his intentions to quit musical theater. So, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to take a like two minute, 15 second detour into one of the songs for Merrily We Roll Along. And this is a song called Not A Day Goes By.
What'd you guys think? It's hard to give it context. I mean, just hearing the song outside of the show. I've never seen the show. So you can say, oh, maybe that song was good or maybe that song was bad. But again, it doesn't, I think, as the saying goes, a a single point does not a line make. So it's hard to tell what went wrong with the show based on one song. I mean, it wasn't a bad song. I know that. Yeah. T, what are your thoughts? That is exactly what I was going to say. Really? Verbatim. (laughs) Fantastic. I actually think it's a sweet song. I, again, yeah, context is important. Uh, You can, it's it's sweeter and a little sadder than some of the stuff that we've played on the show. So I don't know if it feels indicative to Stephen Sondheim's work. It also doesn't have the sort of lyric play that he's known for, you know? Yeah, I mean, we're going to get into some of his more delectable things in just a bit. But yeah, it's, it doesn't sound as masochistic as normally his stuff does. <laughs> Correct. All right. Well, of course, after something like a heart attack, you'd be kind of in a reflective mood. And Stephen actually said that I read this really nice phrase in a review of a book recently that an artist revises the world. And it seems like his ability to create his own world of his own imagination had saved him when his life was at its bleakest. If his themes were, you know, somber, the essential loneliness of the human condition and the death of illusion in the end was his ability to metamorphosize his private anguish into something outside of himself that had actually saved him. So his ability to create helped him create, if that makes any sense. Like, I think so. Yeah. The month of June 1982 was a pivotal one. He was approached by a producer... Lewis Allen, who suggested that he collaborate with this guy named James Lapine, who was a young writer and director who was working on a musical version of a novella by Nathaniel West called A Cool Million. As it happened, Stephen already knew of James's work, seeing his play 12 Dreams at the New York Shakespeare Festival in 1981, and he was impressed by the play because it had to do with the dreams of a girl on a verge of adolescence And the way he had staged it was this three-level set, and it really impressed Stephen at the time. It occurred to him that James might be the right person to write a musical with, but he didn't do anything about it at the time. And then one of his friends made a very kismet phone call, and James entered his life. They officially met in 1982 when Lapine was staging a version of Midsummer's Night's Dreams for the New York Shakespeare Festival in Central Park, And he turned the outdoor stage into a part of a larger scene by using real grass, real trees, real flowers, and even added a small pond. And of course, with someone such a pronounced visual imagination like this, appealed to Sondheim. So he really wanted Lapine in his circle. He found Sondheim very congenial. He said he's so curious that he'll interact with everybody. The idea of writing a musical around a cool million was abandoned, but then they quickly decided to work together on something else. Rather than tell a conventional story like they had in the past, they wanted to write a musical structured around a scene as variations. They tried to put together photographs of different people to see whether they were inspired to invent relationships between them, and that didn't work. Then they turned to a painting. Lapine immediately thought, and I'm going to butcher this because I'm definitely not French, but the thought turned to the the 
portrait Sunday afternoon on the Isle of Argangete by George Seurat. Now, I know how to say George Seurat because I like mm-hmm. that, but Jete, I could be saying that Jetty, Grand La Grande Jetty. They had used photographs which caught his imagination since the moment that he saw it. That famous 19th century work, if you guys don't know, depicts a group of people promenading along the banks of an island in the middle of the Seine. Funny enough, I don't think it exists anymore, like where that picture was painted. I think it's a residential area of Paris now. Oh, really? Yeah, there are trees, there are children. Yeah, I don't I don't know if they like tore it up and, and built on it, but don't know if it, that exact area exists anymore. But it's pointillism. There are trees and there are children. There's a dog, yachts, people sitting on the grass. And for all like the beauty that the picture is, like individual little vignettes are beautiful, but it doesn't connect. There's a disconnect in this painting. Do you know this painting, TJ or Will? I don't believe I know it. No, I do not. I think you would if you saw it. Like you might, it's a very, very famous painting. It's basically like, to give the layman's terms, it's a bunch of people standing by the water in big dresses and suits and they have umbrellas and they're all staring off into the distance. But there's like no real connection. I thought that was Monet. No, it's so hot. Okay. It's right? Okay. Monet didn't really do, he did like landscape and light. He did, Mm. I don't think he did humans. Now, None of the people in the picture are looking at each other. So that's why there's like this disconnect. And Stephen said that there are all these people in the paintings and you speculate on why none of them are looking at each other. Maybe somebody was having an affair or maybe one was related to someone else. And then Jim said, of course, the main character is missing out of this painting. And that's the artist. And at that Hmm. moment, that was like their light bulb. That was like, oh, okay, okay, we got this. Hmm. Now... Stephen began to read what little information there was about George Surratt, and he became even more excited. There was this marvelous genius who died of some strange disease, probably a rare form of of meningitis, but he led a double life. On one hand, almost every night he had dinner at his mother's house. Only a few weeks before he died, at only the age of 31, he discovered that his mom had discovered that he had kept a mistress and a baby all secret. And then the more that he read about him, the more he realized, my God, this is all about music. So, you know, there's little info about George. So what he did know was just fascinating. And so the whole play, the whole musical revolves around George, a fictionalized version of Surratt, who immerses himself deeply into painting this masterpiece and his great-grandson, also named George, a conflicted and cynical contemporary artist, That Broadway production opened in 1984. The musical won the 1985 Pulitzer for Drama, two Tony Awards for Design, and nominated for Best Musical, numerous Drama Desk Awards, and in 1991, the Olivier Award for Best Musical and the 2007 Olivier Award for Outstanding Musical Production. It's enjoyed several major revivals, including in 2005-2006 production that was the first presented at the Meyer Chocolate Factory, its subsequent 2008 Broadway transfer, and a 2017 Broadway revival. Now, this music, like I said, this musical fictionalizes Seurat's life. In fact, 
And neither of his children survived beyond infancy, so he didn't have any heirs. So it would be impossible for his great-grandson to actually exist. His common wife law was named Madeline Nobuch. I'm going to probably be saying that wrong. Knobloch? Madeline Madeline Knobloch? Maybe. I'm going to go with you. You said it with your full chest. Madeline Knobloch. Luckily, I don't really have to say it except for one more time. (laughs) Who gave birth to his two sons, one after his death. And unlike Dot, Madeline was living with Surratt when he died and did not immigrate to America. She died of cirrhosis of the liver at age 35. Hmm. And uh, the show opened off-Broadway at Playwright Horizons, starring... Ah, Mandy Patinkin and Bernadette Peters. That's a cast right there. Wow. Yes, it is. It is phenomenal. Hey, hey, names I know. Yes. (laughs) Even I've heard of them. I am so proud of you. Look at you growing. (laughs) It opened up in July of 1983 and ran for 25 performances. Now, only the first act was performed, which is still in development. The first act was fleshed out. And the work began on the second during that time. The completed two-act show premiered during the last three performances. After seeing the show at Playwrights, composers Leonard Bernstein wrote his old friend Stephen Sondheim, calling the show brilliant, deeply conceived, canny, and by far the most personal statement I've heard from you thus far. Bravo. Mm, High praise. Now, in the off-Broadway, Kelsey Grammer and Mary Elizabeth Antonio. And Christine Baranski, or who made up the cast. That's a killer cast, too. Wow. Yes, it is. They didn't continue with the show on Broadway, which is crazy. It is, yeah. Previews for the full show began on April 2nd, 1984 at the Booth Theater on Broadway and officially opened on May 2nd, 1984. The second act was finalized and frozen only a few days before the opening. So they were still working on it just a couple days before... First curtain went up. Wow. Lapine directed and Patinkin and Peters starred with scenic design, which if you actually see the PBS version of it, the scenic design is really interesting. And that was Tony Straganis. Straganis. Oh, you're on that one. Straganis. 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 S-T-R-A-I-G-E-S. Strains? Strains? I don't know. That's it, what I got from it cannot be that easy. <laughs> Tony. Tony. All right. Well, I'm sitting as of right now about oh, 500 yards from Aaron Burr's famous rock. Where do they move that to? Because it's not uptown. Yeah. It's still at the top. It's at the top of the hill. They just like moved it across the street at some point. Is it quiet up town? See, I did there. I I did, and <laughs> I'm. I don't totally hate you for it. I thought it was good. So it opened on Broadway to mixed critical response. The New York Times theater critic Frank Rich wrote, "I do know that Mr. Sondheim, Mr. Lapine have created an audacious, haunting, and in its own intensely personal way, touching work, even when it fails." As it does on occasion, Sunday in the Park is setting the stage for even more sustained theatrical innovations yet to come. The musical enjoyed a healthy box office, but ultimately it lost money. Closing in October 
1985 after 604 performances and 35 previews. I still think that's a healthy run, but it's sad that they lost money. Yeah, it is a good run. But like you said, there's a lot of things going on that we don't see or know about that could lead to the show not being profitable. Yeah. Although it was considered a brilliant artistic achievement for Sondheim and it was nominated for 10 Tony Awards, the show only won two, both for design. The major winner that night was La Cage Folle. So... I mean... <laughs> still, like, when yeah. you hear of what things are going up against, you're like, oh, God, yeah. Because, like... It's no wonder. Like, Wicked is an example of that, where you're like, oh, God, Wicked must have won the Tony for Best Musical. No, it didn't. It lost to Avenue Q. And there's controversy behind that one, but... Yeah. So, I love Avenue Q. Yeah. Oh, I do, too. I do, too. But it's crazy that this tiny little raunchy puppet show could take down those two witches. Sometimes that's all you need. Yeah. So, well, you body know, puppets. Essentially, all award shows have a, a mixed history, if you go back and look at who they chose to award. Who which? I can't remember what series we were doing when we, we saw that, like, the Eagles and Loggins and Messina and all these these terrific rock bands lost Best New Artist to America or the Starland <laughs> Vocal Band or somebody. Well, I mean, Starland Vocal. It was Prine. It was, it was our John Prine, it was our John Prine episode. Well, it was like I John mean, Prine, the Eagles, Loggins and Messina, like all these these fantastic acts lost. It was either America or the Starland Vocal Band. Are you sure it wasn't? Are you sure it wasn't Manfred Mann's Earth Band? <laughs> All right, Tom, what do you have to say? Ladies and gentlemen, I am Tom McGuinness, and that was your federally mandated Manfred Man reference of the podcast. I hope you are satisfied. Never gets old. Never gets old. I don't want to throw around the term greatest moment of my life, but uh, there you have it, folks. You know, putting us back on track. Now, Sunday actually won the New York Drama Critics Circle Award for Outstanding Musical, and Sondheim and Lapine were awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Sunday is one of only 10 musicals, from what I read, that actually won a Pulitzer Prize. I do believe another one of those was Rent, and I think the other one would be Hamilton. Yeah, Hamilton won for sure. Yeah. Well, I know for a fact that Rent won a Pulitzer. Mm -hmm. It wasn't Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. Okay. I don't want to talk about... I don't want it to talk about catch it. me if you can. I promise you that. Oh, God. Please don't talk about that. I have PTSD from that show. Sorry. So, <clears throat> on May 15th, 1994, the original cast of Sunday in the Park with George returned to Broadway for a 10th anniversary concert, which was also a benefit for Friends Indeed. Now, the original Broadway cast recording was released by RCA, like Winnie Todd was. A remastered version was re released in March 2007, and that won the 1984 Grammy for Best Cast Show Album. So that would be another Grammy for another Sondheim show. So I think we talked about it enough, so let's actually listen to a song from Sunday in the Park with George. This is, if you guys didn't know that Mandy Patinkin could sing, Mandy Patinkin can sing. He's unbelievable. Yeah. This song is actually called Finish the Hat. So if you know anything about Broadway, Finish the Hat 
is a big thing with anyone in bra. It's it's creating. It's about creation. And so finish the hat just means, you know, you're creating something, see your vision to the end. So we're going to listen to Mandy Patinkin, who, if you didn't know, could sing. Mandy Patinkin can sing. So oh, here's yeah. Finish the Hat by, from Sunday in the Park with George. Mademoiselles, you and me, pal. Second bottle, ah, she looks for me. Bonnet flapping, yapping, roof, chicken, pastry. Yes, she looks for me. Good. Let her look for me to tell me why she left me. As I always knew she would I had thought she understood They have never understood And no reason that they should But if anybody could Finishing the hat How you have to finish the hat how you watch the rest of the world from a window While you finish the hat Mapping out a sky What you feel like planning a sky What you feel when voices that come through the window Go until they distance and die Until there's nothing but sky And how you're always turning or the stick of the dog of the light How the kind of woman willing to wait Not the kind that you want to find waiting To return you to the night Dizzy from the height Coming from the height Studying the hat Entering the world of the hat Reaching through the world of the hat Like a window Back to this one from that Studying a face Stepping back to look at the face Leaves a little space in the way Like a window But to see It's the only way to see And when the woman Always standing by Mapping out the sky Finishing a hat Starting on a hat Finishing a hat Look, I made a hat Where there never was a hat Now, Will, mm. what, what are your thoughts on that since you actually know Mandy Patinkin more as a vocalist? Yeah, I mean, I don't think the song shows off everything he can do. I mean, but he did Giants in the Sky. It's unbelievable. 
it's still got, again, the lyric play that we look for in Sondheim. So he's definitely got that cadence and the rhythm. And, and the guy's just insanely talented. There's no question. It really is. And I, I mean, I, I'm in love with this show. I think it's a completely unique concept. I like the music. And you can't beat Mandy Patinkin and Bernadette Peters. Bernadette Peters, no. if you actually want me to explode, introduce me to Bernadette Peters. You'll actually see That'll me be it. liquefy. Like, I wouldn't be a human. I would not. I would be a puddle that she would step on, like in that X Men movie. Yeah, I I would be Senator Kelly. Yep. <laughs> All right. Now, uh, just rocking back a hair to tell this story, so I can tell the next story. Stephen had made enough money by the sale of Gypsy. He bought himself that house in Turtle Bay that we had talked about. I think like episode early on, episode like one or two. And if you remember his neighbor, who his, who his uh, suffering, long-suffering neighbor was. I can't remember. Who was it? Catherine Hepburn. Oh, jeez. So in the 1998 book, which is actually the basis for a lot of information in this, so if you're interested in reading, it's a little bit of a harder read, but it's, it's called, a, I think it's called A Life, mm-hmm. but it's his book, Stephen Sondheim. Uh, biographer Meryl Seacrest notes that he was eager to hire Louis Vargas, which was a sort of South American version of Jeeves as his kind of cook slash houseman. But Vargas was unimpressed with the job offer. So Sondheim name dropped in order to try to entice him, but nothing worked. And not until <laughs> he mentioned his next door neighbor, the barefoot glass-banging, protesting woman who would come and scream at him in the middle of the night for playing his piano, which was, of course, Catherine Hepburn. Vargas immediately took the job. (laughs) So the the first day he came to work, he heard her voice out in the garden, and he went out and he feather-dusted the flowers. That's funny. Son, I recall, they struck up a conversation, became fast friends. Within 10 minutes, she would bring him fruits and vegetables from the country, and he would give her recipes. So, you know, when Stephen hired him on, he needed him to be, like, the person that could take care of, basically, his house, which he ended up doing, including, and I, I think I bring this up later, but I don't know if it's in this episode or the next one, but he actually gives Stephen, like, that iconic haircut that he has for the rest of his life. The Sondheim haircut, you know. The Sondheim haircut. Lewis was always taking care of Stephen. He was like, in several episodes that I've said, he is an excellent cook. And I I think even when you took out the salt and seasonings, he was still incredible. And that's why he was able to help Stephen on a healthier path. Because I think at this point, said he was 49 when he had his heart attack. He died at 91. So... A lot of years left. Yeah. But he... He, oh, I'm actually going to say it right now. I, I just, I wrote two episodes in one day, so I couldn't remember what was in it. But basically, he took over completely running the house. He supervised the routine cleanings, the repairs, decided which clothes would be sent out. And then he also gave Stephen those haircuts. He mastered the art of dealing with Stephen's hair, which changed from straight to lanky to crisp and curly as it went gray. Stephen said that he was the equivalent of a wife, while in the traditional sense, they had a wonderful, wonderful relationship that lasted until the death of Louis Vargas from AIDS in 1993. Mm. When he discovered that he was 
ill and it was terminal, Lewis actually set about training his replacement, Louise Andre, to, to avoid confusion between the two, will go by Andre. And at this time, he actually suffered another loss, which was his friend Michael Bennett, who passed away of AIDS in 1987. He was an American musical theater director, writer, choreographer, and dancer. He won seven Tony Awards for his choreography and direction of Broadway shows and was nominated for an additional 11. He had choreographed Promises, Promises, Follies, Company. In 1976, he had won the Tony Award for Best Direction of a Musical and Best Choreography for a massive show that I'm even sure that my brother would know called Hmm. A Chorus Line. I believe he would. Yeah. Mm, Are you sure? (laughs) You don't know A Chorus Line? I mean, I've heard the name. I mean, that's close as I'm going to get. Yep. Yeah, that's good enough for me. I've heard the name and I know who Bernadette Peters is. So I've made some progress. I'm proud of you. This is called growth. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Stephen got another itch. And speaking to James, they were looking for an idea that was bright, lighthearted, and fun. (laughs) I can't help but laugh because of what the show is that comes out. But it's like, they're bright, lighthearted, fun. Woo! Do you know what you're about to write? Their impulse was to write a new fairy tale from scratch. Developing Hmm. that notion proved more difficult than James had ever imagined. However, the idea of bringing a group of familiar fairy tale characters into a single story seemed more promising. And the fairy tales, of course, have been used for the basis of a ton of different shows and operas. But what Stephen and James envisioned was closer to the freewheeling English pantomime, which the story of, you know, like Cinderella... Aladdin, Puss in Boots, added as the barest pretext for a madcap romp full of local jokes, slapstick humor, and a principal boy, always in tights, and a girl, you know, an obligatory widow, always played by a comedian in drag. And James had loved fairy tales as a child. And when he was first introduced to the wonderful and sinister illustrations of Arthur Rickham, of recent years, he had been influenced by Bruno Bettelheim's seminal work for the use of enchantment. So even though Stephen had made sort of nods in that direction, like fairy tales dropped from a little night musical before its opening. So that song was actually cut before it ever made it to the stage. Hmm. Ironically titled Happily Ever After was another song for company. Such stories had not propelled his useful imagination. Of course, like Stephen had seen Disney films like Snow White and Pinocchio. And of course, you know, he loved The Wizard of Oz. But once he uh, jokingly remarked that he learned more from Barbara Stanwyck movies. Still, the idea had promised, if only to see what dimensions such a story could attain when filtered through Sondheim's wicked but cherishing wit, as Jack Kroll wrote. So, Into the Woods began to take shape. So now, if you know Into the Woods, you can see why I'm like, yeah, lighthearted and fun? Maybe the I mean, yeah. <laughs> first act. Some maybe. of it, yeah. Some of it's, I wouldn't, yeah, no, I wouldn't call that like lighthearted and fun. Like I don't watch Into the Woods for a pick-me-up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, it there is a reason why most high schools only do the first act. Right. So, of course, Into the Woods is a 1987 musical with music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim and a book by James Lapine. 
The musical intertwines several plots of Grimm's fairy tales, exploring the consequences of the characters' wishes and quests. So the main characters are taken from Little Red Riding Hood, Jack and the Beanstalk, Rapunzel, uh, Cinderella, as well as several others. And the music is tied together with a story involving a childless baker and his wife in their quest to begin a family, which was the original beginning of the Grimm's brothers' Rapunzel. So it does actually tie in with the having a sister, which was Rapunzel, in the <laughs> show. Their interaction with a witch who has placed a curse on them and their interaction with other storybook characters during their journey. So it's great because all these different characters from all these different stories have a reason to go into the woods. That's the name of the show. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan George. <laughs> the musical debuted in San Diego at the Old Globe Theater in 1986 and premiered on Broadway on November 5th, 1987, where it won three major Tony Awards. Best score, best book, best actress in a musical, which was Joanna Gleason, and she plays the baker's wife. In a year that was dominated by Phantom of the Opera, sigh, the musical has been produced many, many times with a 1988 U.S. tour, a 1990 West End production, a 97th 10th anniversary concert, a 2002 Broadway review, uh, sorry, Broadway revival, a 2010 London revival, and in 2012 as part of New York City's Outdoor Shakespeare in the Park series. Now, I actually got to see Into the Woods in 2003 with Vanessa Williams as the witch, and she Ooh. was phenomenal. And there's a quick change in that show, which was so cool. Anyway... Now, there is an ill-conceived Disney film adaptation directed by Rob Marshall. Uh, it was released in 2014, and I hate you, James Gordon. That's just me. The film grossed over $213 million worldwide, and I'm, I'm wondering if they didn't see that, and they were like, you know what we should do? Cats. I wouldn't be shocked. People love cats. Get that James Corden. He can be Bustopher Jones. It's going to be amazing. Release the butthole cut. And they really, they learn nothing from their Phantom adaptation, apparently. No, please. Like, the musical adaptations, which I can honestly say, like, are beautiful and I really enjoyed. I enjoyed In the Heights. I thought it was great. And that's it. <laughs> Chicago. Chicago's also incredible. Chicago's good, yeah. Chicago's good. I like a chorus line. I like that musical. I love all that jazz. But I don't think that was a stage show, but, like, I love that musical. But typically, like, there's a lot of things that a musical film adaptation can't, there's, it's missing something. And even when they did Les Miserables, it was missing something. Yeah, definitely. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's a nice way to have the, the movie. It's a nice way to have it visualized. It's, you know, in, in just not listening to the CD or whatever. Sure. It's nice to have a film adaptation, but man, make some better. <laughs> There's a second Broadway revival that was started, which like the cast of that was stupid. <laughs> it was stupid. And I would have killed to have seen that, but we couldn't make it up there in time. Uh, and that began on June the 28th, 2022 at the St. James Theater. And that production closed on January the 8th, 2023. And it's actually going to be touring this same year. Oh, so there's a touring cast. Okay. 
yeah, I think I think there's going on a national tour. I don't even think they're coming to Atlanta, which makes me really, yeah, which makes me super sad. But I think well, the the big one was that Sarah Bareilles was in it, and I love Sarah Bareilles. She played the mm-hmm. baker's wife, and of course she wrote Waitress, which is phenomenal. But yeah, that that was a cast that I was like blown away by. Okay. Hmm. So Into the Woods opened at the Martin Beck Theater on Broadway on November 5th, 1987, and closed September 3rd, 1989, after 765 performances. Woo, good run. Yeah. So it starred Bernadette Peters as the witch, Joanna Gleason as the baker's wife, Chip Zinn as the baker. It had Kim Crosby, Ben Wright, Barbara Bryan, it had, oh my gosh, uh, Gene Kelly as Snow White. Oh, there were so many people in this. The production won the Drama Desk Circle Award, the New York Drama Critics Circle Award, the Drama Desk Award for Best Musical, and the original Broadway cast actually won a Grammy Award. So, nice. Yep. The show was nominated for 10 Tony Awards. It won three Best Score giving him, uh, Stephen, his fourth, fourth or fifth. I think we're on the fourth. Best book by James Lapine and Best Actress. Peters left the show after almost five months due to a prior commitment for the movie Slaves of New York. The Witch was then played by Betsy Jocelyn. And of course, that is the role, I believe, that most stunt casting happens in with The Witch. Because really? she is, yeah, she is pivotal. Like, well, think about it. I've I've named Bernadette Peters, Betsy Jocelyn, Vanessa Williams, and Meryl Streep played her in the film. So, yeah, it's also one of the best roles, too, <laughs> to be honest. So, I've kind of talked about this show a lot. And if I may editorialize for just a moment, Into the Woods was introduced to me in, I think, 1993 by a guy that I met at Montreat, which was a Christian music camp that takes place in North (laughs) Carolina. And it's beautiful up there, but he was like, I give you this. And instead of giving me a mixtape, he gave me Into the Woods. My love for him faded away in about 35 minutes but my love of this musical stays. The reason why I laughed at like lighthearted is like, yes, there are lighthearted moments, but this show is very sad. It's very dark and it deals with consequences of not just your action, but other people's. And it's one of the most introspective, beautiful, sad shows. And yet there are some really funny songs. Agony, Agony's hilarious. But there are other songs that are super disturbing, like Hello, Little Girl. It's just one of those shows that you either love or you hate. So I'm hoping that you love it because I'm going to play one of the seminal songs. We, Me and Will actually had a conversation about which song to play because uh, there are like 15 songs that you could play from this show. Oh, easily, yeah. But there, it's, there are giants in the sky. No one is alone. Children will listen. The last midnight. 
your fault. Like all these songs we could have chosen. So I actually went with No One Is Alone because it's got one of the greatest messages. But I do encourage our listeners, please, guys, please go and listen to the soundtrack. Go watch a, I want to say they have Into the Woods on like Hulu or Prime or something. It is streaming with the original Broadway cast. So I do encourage you, please go listen to this because it is gorgeous. So I'm going to play No One Is Alone from Into the Woods.
just don't let it go. Things will come out right now. We can make it so. Someone is on your side. No one is alone. It's a great song. It's a beautiful song. It is one of the most beautiful songs. Like, I love that song. It's great now. It is great. All right. We're all the way in the 90s. You guys, we're in the 90s. We made it. We made it. What'd you make? You made a fool out of yourself. What'd you make? So in 1990, Stephen was appointed visiting professor of contemporary theater at St. Catherine's College, Oxford for the Hillary term, January through March 1990. The chair had been endowed by his good friend, Cameron McIntosh. <laughs> I'm sorry. I have thoughts about it. Like, he's not Phil Collins level, but God, uh, I just don't like his work. I'm sorry, to whom did you just compare Phil Collins? Cameron McIntosh. Yeah, ah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Just, just say ah, uh, and we'll move on. <laughs> <laughs> so he endowed the chair as a way of bringing instruction and drama and the performing arts to a university, which actually didn't offer a degree in that field. So like there wasn't theater at this school. So the title for his first public lecture was everything you always wanted to know about theater, but were afraid to ask. Stephen dealt with the masterclass with, for instance, the subtlety of musical theater as a topic for serious discussion. So again, like I was saying, Over on the other side of the pond, I believe they take plays much more seriously than they do musicals. Like musicals is a lighter affair over there. Whereas plays, like we're talking about the birthplace of Shakespeare. So, you know, they take their plays very seriously. And so that was a provocative idea in Britain. But the the most important aspect of the course were the master classes for which 13 students out of 92 who had applied would be selected. Sondheim took the appointment on fairly short notice because he thought the London production of Sunday in the Park with George was going into rehearsals and that could act as a primary example of a way that a musical was assembled because of its appropriateness for the course and the creativity itself. And because it was an ideal opportunity to treat art and teaching as a complementary activity. And so I think with this course, you can see that he actually took what Oscar Hammerstein had done to him and passed it on to the next generation. I think one thing that really gets overlooked is that Stephen's willingness to mentor people. Like legitimately go watch the movie Tick, Tick, Boom, which by the way is another fabulous adaptation yeah, it is. for a musical. And I, I just openly wept the entire time from the beginning to the end. And, and Will the Thrill will attest to that, that I just cried the whole time. But he would mentor Jonathan Larson, who would then go on to, he passed away before his seminal work, Rent, actually opened up. But Jonathan acted as sort of a pseudo-mentor for Lin-Manuel Miranda. So this idea of passing mentorship down to the next generation actually, I think, meant something to Stephen. 
At the end of his tenure, Stephen presented each of the students with his favorite rhyming dictionary by Clement Wood. He he autographed each of them saying, good luck, Stephen Sondheim. That's pretty awesome. He had had a massive success with Into the Woods and he had new breathing space artistically because of that. So he knew he could pretty much try anything at Playwright Horizons. He'd come to value that venue because of the freedom that it offered, and he even like depended on it. That subscription series that they offered meant that the audience had not been told by critics to like or dislike a production. So people would just go in blind hearing word of mouth. So his next idea would be the most radical to date. And uh, Will the Thrill, please go ahead and prepare that story that we talked about prior to this recording. The next thing he decided to make a musical about was assassinations. Ah, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now, a subject that even in this time would seem preposterous for choice. That was kind of one of the reasons why he wanted to do it. This idea began to kick around his head so many years before he actually did anything about it because apparently Stephen would like think about something in like... 1974, and in like 88, he'd be like, oh, yeah, and then he'd go back to it. So apparently this this idea had been kicking around his head for some time. Um, And uh, he had acted as a judge for entries by playwrights into the musical theater lab founded by Stuart Ostro. And one of the scripts he read was by Charles Gilbert. Its title was Assassins. He said, I looked at the title and thought, what a great idea for a musical. Gilbert had based his play on a book about assassins and the intense feeling of desperation and alienation that they had expressed during court proceedings. His own work evolved into a story about a Vietnam veteran who was goaded into assassinating a president. Stephen was struck by a poem that Gilbert had quoted by Charles Guiteau, who happened to be President James Garfield's assassin. Mm-hmm. Written on the day of his execution, it began, I'm going to the Lordy. The poem and the letters and the diaries, that was what was interesting about it. The narrative seemed to weigh the piece down, so I never did it, but I thought, I wish I had had this idea. Nothing more ever happened. Charles Gilbert went on to work on other projects and eventually teach the theater department at a college in Delaware. Then in 1988, John Weedman, with whom Steve had collaborated on Pacific Overtures with, approached him with the idea about a musical about Woodrow Wilson and the Parents' Peace Conference, which sounds fascinating. Didn't Weedman work for Sesame Street? He might have. I think for some reason that sounds right. So Stephen thought that the subject was more cinematic than theatrical, but then that actually reminded him of assassins. Weeman was immediately intrigued. And so Stephen wrote asking Gilbert whether he could use the idea. Gilbert said, I was perfectly cheeky. I was offered to work on it and said that he had had someone else in mind. So lawyers were called in and actually Gilbert gave his consent and the idea went ahead. When they first took the long view going all the way back to the assassination of Julius Caesar, and incorporating Charlotte Corday was going to be an epic piece about what it meant to kill a political figure. And the field proved to be so well populated that the authors kept eliminating 
categories and just finally narrowed the cast down to presidential assassins, including Booth, who killed Lincoln, Gateau, who, like I said, assassinated James Garfield, a gentleman named Leon, who murdered William McKinley, Giuseppe Zangara, who tried to kill President-elect Franklin Roosevelt, Lee Harvey Oswald, who was Kennedy's assassination, Samuel Bike, who tried to kill Nixon, and then my personal favorite, Lynette Squeaky from and Sarah yep. Jane Moore. Those were my, like, we'll get to it. Who both shot at Gerald Ford on different occasions and John Hinckley, who would end up wounding President Ronald Reagan. Assassins was formed. Music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, book by John Weedman, based on original concept by Charles Gilbert Jr. Using the framing device of an all-American yet sinister carnival game, the semi-review portrays a, gro a group of historical figures who attempted, successful or not, to assassinate the presidents of the United States and explores their presence in American history and what it says about the ideals of their country. The score was written to reflect both popular music of the various depicted errors and borders on a tradition of patriotic American music. The musical opened off-Broadway in 1992. Mixed and negative reviews ran for 73 performances. And in 2004, the show was produced for Broadway proper to highly favorable notice and won five Tony Awards, including Best Revival of a Musical. So it opened up after 73 performances, closing on January 16th, 1991. Hey, quick question. Yes, you in the back. Did they mention Richard Lawrence? I don't think so. Was he so. among the attempted assassins that is... Uh, Worked into I don't this? believe so. No, I don't think so. Okay. Are y'all familiar with Richard Lawrence? No. Mm, can't say I am. He was an unemployed house painter who tried to assassinate Andrew Jackson, but his pistol misfired, and old Hickory beat the dude's ass with his walking cane. <laughs> beat him with a stick, yep. I have actually heard this story. And it wasn't just one gun. It was both guns, right? Like both guns jammed. It was he two had guns. two pistols, both misfired. And Jackson, yes. who was almost 70, beat the dude's ass <laughs> with a cane. <laughs> yeah, I'm, pretty amazing. I'm kind of bummed they missed that one because that's the most interesting of any of them, really. I actually like Squeaky from. I mean, like as much as you can like a psycho, she's probably her and the girl that she's kind of paired up with because it, that really they're the only pair because I think they went after the same president, so they put them in the the same scenes together. I'm not even sure that they actually met. But they have the best, most fun songs. And we have a story to tell about that. But no, I'm bummed that they didn't include that because I feel like that could have been a great fodder and possibly a great ass beating. It would. We, we, I'm trying to think that you, know, you could work up some great uh, songs to that, I would think. All right. Your homework is to write a song about Andrew Jackson's failed assassination. He couldn't move too fast. But that old man beat my ass with a cane. It's writing itself. It's like Sondheim himself is doing yep. it. Yep. It's like he's in the room. <laughs> All right. You're welcome. So on October 29th, 1992, Assassins opened in London, directed by Sam Mendes. Oh, I didn't actually say who was in the off-Broadway production. That was Terrence Mann and Victor Garber. Victor Garber was in the original production? Yeah, so that's two productions of Stephen Sondheim that Victor has been. I have got such a, I love you, honey. I'm sorry. <laughs> but if Victor Carver was like, hey, what's up? I'd be like, hey, not much. 
I'm sorry. You, I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> I, I'm just saying, Victor is my hall pass. I know he's gay, but I don't care. He's my hall pass. Sorry. Anyway, are you okay, honey? Are you <laughs> no, upset? I'm all good. Are you sad? No, no, I'm all good. You would leave me in a heartbeat for Allie Larder, okay? Probably, yeah. <laughs> I've said it before. <laughs> I mean, the same. I just happened to go for Silver Foxes. Hello, Anderson Cooper. How are you? Got news about him too, but anyway. Ah. <laughs> so the the one that opened in London was directed by Sam Mendes, and that was Sarah Jane Moore was played by Louise Gold. That's I don't actually know who that is. So that show ran for 76 performances, closing on January 9th, 1993. Now, if Sondheim were particularly apprehensive, apprehensive about critical response to assassins, he had a good cause. Because do you know what was happening around this time in the 90s-ish? It's 92? Happening in the Persian Gulf. Yeah. Yeah. Operation Desert Storm had just started, and the war in the Persian Gulf against Iraq was just starting to, to become this massive thing because it was Desert, it was Desert Shield, and then they moved to Desert Storm. And one of the, the guys who was the rehearsal pianist said that there was a team that put a television downstairs in the dressing rooms and all the actors were just watching the developments groaning because they knew that this show would have implications. So John Simmons thought the show was an extremely bad taste when the terrible events of the Gulf began. Stephen Company and all affluent folks in no great need of turning a buck could have done the galleon thing and shut it down. Jack Cole wrote, you can swallow the savage comedy, but not the show's moral fuzziness. Everybody's got their right to dream is a pretty pathetic rationale for these complex questions that Sondheim raises. The tone of these scenes is wildly self-important and the intellectual content embarrassingly slight. William and Henry III wrote, one would have thought from the tone of the reviews, Benedict Nightingale observed that Sondheim might have been recommending that George Bush be shot. The show suffered from bad timing on both fronts, the original run and its Broadway revival <laughs> because it was supposed to open up in 2001 as a Broadway revival. Yeah. So that was pushed to 2004. So needless to say, the, the reviews were not great. And this is one of the shows that wasn't even considered for a Tony nomination. However, it did, of course, win the Drama League Award for Distinguished Achievements in Musical Theater, and it did win for the Critics Theater Award for Best Musical, and at one point, it did win for the Olivier Award for Best Actor in a Musical. So it wasn't without its accolades. It just wasn't the best idea. Now, mm -hmm. I was really... 2020 was shit for all of us. Like, if you could find one person who was like, 2020 was great, punch them. So after being locked up in quarantine for like a year and a half, me and Will the Thrill decided to take in a little night at the theater. And literally, I was looking for any show, any show on stage. If there's a show, I want to be in the audience and I want to watch this show. Luckily, 
we found production of assassins that was playing in basically the Chinatown area of Los Angeles. And mm-hmm. I'm like, yes, I love Stephen Sondheim. I had I wasn't very familiar with this show, but I was like, I will literally go watch a person lick stamps for four hours if it's to music. I don't care. So we went and it was, I loved it. I thought it was great. The two women behind us had oh, well, other had other thoughts. You have to understand this was a theater that was very typical in its its patronage, where you have an older demographic, shall we say. And we went to an evening performance, so it was what, 8 o'clock? It was 8 o'clock? o'clock. It was 8 o'clock, I think. And uh, we realized in the first song, we were like, what is that, what is that noise? Is that an air conditioner? Is that a... We realized someone's just, it's just asleep. This, it's, yeah. It's just like started out really soft, like... Yeah. And then just kind of swelled. And it kept going. I mean, this person was just sawing logs <laughs> right behind us. And, and by the time we got to, you know, How I Saved Roosevelt, I think both of them were asleep, right? <laughs> both of yeah, so, them were done. They yeah, were so the first... And there's not an intermission in this show. It's a one act. There's no intermission. Yeah, so they just, they just zoned, they zonked out. It was, it was quite funny. <laughs> Done. And like, everyone around, like in our bubble was just like silently snickering. And you could tell the guy playing Lee Harvey Oswald could hear it. Because oh, yeah. he was trying to say his lines and he, and he would just start kind of giggling. But it was like, there's no way the act, because it was a very small theater, but there's no way those actors did not hear that. And that sound just carried. It had great acoustics in those two seats, I'll tell you. Oh, good. But just like, I was dead. It was so funny. But that's actually where we're going to end this episode for the night. Thoughts? I'm interested to hear, T, what do you think so far? I don't really know what to tell you. I'm uh, very much like a three-legged mule eating jello. Okay. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. That's the worst illusion in the history of the world. That's amazing. Well, what do you think about his work so far? Totally out of my wheelhouse, and I've missed two episodes. But what I've been here for, I mean, it's... Uh, I, I guess the, the the surprising thing for me is that the guy had some shows that were critical flops and commercial bombs. Because I... I, I his is a name that even I know, and I know nothing about Broadway, nothing about musicals. So I was just like, oh, well, this guy's, this is a Midas Touch guy. Everything this guy does, I'm sure must be amazing and just turns to gold. And the the, the, the interesting part for me of what I've gleaned from your series so far is that it's not the case. Yeah. Which is surprising. To somebody who knows very little about the subject, this, this, that's the very interesting. What I'm gleaning is that you're more surprised at his failures than his successes because it seems you say Stephen Sondheim and people can rattle off like the big huge successes but you forget about things like assassins you forget about merrily roll roll along and anyone can whistle and 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 other stuff so you know we're actually going to but I mean to me it would have been in in my mind it was the equip he was almost the equivalent of like even if you've never seen a movie, you've heard of Steven Spielberg. Correct. Right? That, yep. that, that's, and, and most people would probably think, yeah, and everything that guy does has just been a dynamite blow-up success. And it's like, no, no, it hasn't. And as it turns out, Sondheim is the same. So that's the, the surprising aspect of this for me so far. Very cool. That he, he, had a few, he had a few clunkers. Well, excellent. 
I'm glad that you have some takeaway from it because I was afraid that you're just gonna be like, meh, I'm good, pass. <laughs> you thought I'd make another ridiculous analogy about three-legged mules and jello. Yeah. I mean, I've just come to expect it after like what, 40. How old am I? Three? 43? <laughs> 43 years on this planet. You've been in all 43. And I've just come to expect a certain level of <clears throat> professionalism from you <laughs> when it comes to musicals. Yeah, that's 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 a good word. But you've you've actually done several musicals yourself. One of them, one or two of them was Stephen Sondheim's work. I did two in the Chester Little Theater as a youngster, and they were both Sondheim plays. Indeed, they were. Now, you work at the newspaper, and the newspaper loves taking pictures of the musicals. Please tell me that you have somewhere in the archives a picture of you dressed like one of the newsboys. I'm sure it's here somewhere. We only have physical on-site photo archives that go back to about 88. Eight, and it would have been just before that. Oh, please find that and please share it. I I need that in my life. You can give that to me for my birthday. <laughs> if I wanted to go microfilm digging, I'm sure I I'll could do probably it. find it. I'll do it. I'll go microfilm digging. <laughs> but yes, I was in fact in both Gypsy and A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. I'm so proud of you. Oh, and I just discovered that somebody, you you really can't see it because it's like way in the back of the theater. So you can kind of see like blobs that are moving. But somebody uh, posted me doing the Pirates of Penzance in a 1997 production from Anderson College. <laughs> and you can you can tell which one's me because I pitch a fit like halfway through Poor Wandering One or something, one of the songs from that. And if you post your picture from Gypsy, I will post my video from Pirates of Penzance. Deal. Cool. All right. Well, Will, did you have thoughts? I want to hear your thoughts too. Yeah, I was going to say, oh. don't, don't you want to? Don't you want to get thoughts from someone who has a modicum of input and has like paid attention? Oh yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, you, me. I mean, so like maybe it asked maybe it asked the guy who knows what he's talking about. I don't know. I mean, the the one that's actually taking me to a Broadway musical in like three days. Yeah, uh -huh. I'm going to ask uh -huh. that guy. We're going to go see Beetlejuice again because I love it. <laughs> so and then uh, Spamalot, right? At the end of the we're month, gonna, we're going to see Spamalot. We're going to see that. I think we're going to try to see MJ when it comes here. So, yeah, we are we are theater people. So, honey, bestow knowledge on me. What are your thoughts about Stephen's journey so far? Well, I'm I'm amazed that you know, and I appreciate the the accolades of how much it's assumed I know about the subject. I don't know that much about Sondheim. The more I learn about this, the more it's stuff that I don't know. So it's interesting to hear about, like, you know, TJ said, the, the flops, you know, the the non-successes. And I think uh, there's two sides of it. One is that, you know, these people are flawless. And like you said, everything they do is perfect. And they've got this great catalog of music and shows they've left. And no, there's some, there's some real dull points in there. And I think it's just being an artist in general. Uh, and the other is, you know, how they sort of survive the fickle, you know, whims of the theater. I mean... If someone had a flop, it's easy to just beat the end of their career. You know, they would not get another chance. But Stephen Sondheim does get that chance. He gets it again and again and again. So it's almost like he's, the flops are part of that, you know, bigger hole. So in that way, he's kind of like UA Bowl. No, because UA Bowl hasn't had a hit. So <laughs> okay, fair. Uh, <laughs> if you if UA Bowl had, had, had wanted, like, I just wanted a chance to bring in UA Bowl into this conversation. <laughs> 
<laughs> and you tied him with Steven Sondheim. I think it's never been done before. Um, but yeah, I mean, Steven Sondheim definitely had the high points too. And it's why we're still talking about him, you know, not only after he's passed, but a career that started, geez, I mean, de- decades ago. Well, you know, well before the midway point of the last century. So, yeah, it's. It's really interesting because there's only like one point where he's like, after Merrily, we were a little long. He's like, I'm going to quit. And of course he didn't. Right, yeah. Like, spoiler alert, no. He's still got like 30 more years of work. And it's and the next piece of work that we're actually going to talk about in the, the, the final episode is something that I'm pretty sure my brother will actually know. And he wasn't a part of. But I'm I'm going to see... Uh, if he's if he's shocked by the revelation that I'm about to give him, so we'll have to wait till the next episode to see that you know little little tantalizing treat that I'm dangling in front of your face. But yeah, it's you can see that he's got failures and he's got successes, but he's never morose about it. He's never like he never goes in like full meltdown mode when something bad happens. He just moves on to the next one because his brain is it works like nobody else's that I've ever heard of. Like, who who can come up with this stuff? Who can look at a Surratt painting and go, let's write a musical about that. And you do it. And it's beautiful. <laughs> you know? Let's take a bunch of fairy tales and smash them together. And yeah, that's Stephen Sondheim. We will be concluding our series on Stephen Sondheim next week. So if you're not a theater buff, tune in in two weeks. It'll be great. Where are we going to be talking about... Waylon Arnold Jennings. Yes. And uh, I've been loving the text messages that you're sending me. You're just like, I'm six pages in and he's not even born yet. And I'm like, welcome to Michael Jackson. Okay. <laughs> this is this is exactly how I felt when writing Michael Jackson. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I hope, I hope you folks like Waylon because you're going to get it for a while. I'm fine with that. <laughs> so not for a Michael Jackson while, but but for a while. I'm I'm that fine was, with that. That was a year. It was yeah. pretty much a year. Twenty-one weeks. God, you guys are drama queens. Twenty-one weeks, but now that's not counting slap nuts and all weeks. Not, and it, it was it, it was a long time. Well, I, I think that you guys should be proud of me that I made a musical giant into just six episodes. I'm proud of myself. Okay. Yeah, but we both know you're doing France later this year, so. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Uh, and then Will, after Waylon, what, what are you presenting us? Just started working on this one. I think it's going to be good and go in a direction that I'm very interested in right now. I think the next subject is going to be Dwayne Skydog Allman. Excellent. And then my next one will be Graham Parsons, which was our listener pick. So that'll be my next series would be Graham Parsons. There's three pretty good ones coming up, y'all. Yes, we do. And I think basically pretty much all slap nutty, right? Three of my all-time, three all-timers, in my opinion. Three of my faves. Excellent. Well, that's what you got to look for in the weeks to come. So for now, um, I'll give out our socials and then we'll say goodnight. Let's be honest. That'll probably carry us through about November. (laughs) And then we'll do our Christmas episode and we'll start again next year. I mean, I'm fine with this if you guys are, so... Our social stuff. If you think whether we're doing a good job and you want to give it to our Patreon, you could do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can check us out at Twitter at rock and roll LT. Our Instagram is rock and roll heaven LT. Our Facebook is rock and roll heaven pod. Still not saying our website. Check us out on TikTok at rock and roll heaven pod. 
And if you have anything nasty to say, please say TJ or Will in an email at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. Better yet, go to our Twitter page. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go there. Go to our last post. Post anything you want there. And please make sure to check out all the other awesome Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. Go to Twitter where our, our last tweet memorializes and observes the passing of the Archduke Ferdinand. <laughs> that's about how long it's been since we tweeted. I, w- I wonder if that's going to have any implications. Because they only got locked out and forgot the password. <laughs> no, probably uh, not. It, it's yeah. pretty isolated. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be fun. And then I think there are still tickets available to Rockin' Pod. And you can snag those tickets if you want to come meet us and the rest of the Pantheon family in Nashville. And you can do that at NashvilleRockInPodExpo.com. There are several tiers that I do believe are still available along with day passes. So we'd love to see you there. You guys, I got stickers. We got Rock and Roll Heaven stickers and they're reusable stickers because I don't know how to order things off Vistaprint. But you can find me and I'll give you a Rock and Roll Heaven sticker. And that's pretty much it. So from all of us here at Rock and Roll Heaven, to all of you guys out there, thank you so much for checking us out. TJ, would you like to say anything to our audience? Bye, everybody. All right. And Will the Thrill. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you on the next one. All right, guys. So what I'm going to leave you with tonight is actually a song from that highly controversial show, Assassins. But like I said, please, guys, go check out all of Steven's music. It's beautiful. It's trippy. It's gorgeous, melodic, sad, introspective, extroverted. It's beautiful. But I'm going to leave you with a song tonight from the show Assassins. And this song is called Unworthy of Your Love. Love you all. See you next time. Good night. Jody, tell me, Jody, how I can earn your love. I would swim oceans, I would move mountains, I would do anything for you. What do you want me to do? I am unworthy of your love. Jody, Jody, let me. Prove worthy of your love. Tell me how I can earn your love. Set me free. How can I turn your love to me? I am nothing. You are wind and devil and God. My blood and my body for your love. Let me feel fire, let me drink poison. Tell me to tear my heart in two. If that's what you want me to do. I am unworthy of your love. Charlie, darling, I have done nothing for your love. 
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.